please take up your Bibles and turn with me back to Romans and chapter 1. Romans and chapter 1. Uh, and we'll be considering the second half of this chapter from verse 18 to verse 32 this evening. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel that Paul proclaimed, that he, he longed to share with the, the church in Rome. It's power to save. It's necessity of becoming a partaker in Christ's righteousness by faith in him. Is only and can only be fully appreciated in all its glory and all its light and all its saving power against the backdrop of our guilt before a holy and righteous God. Without an awareness of the depth of our iniquity and of the righteous wrath of God against us because of that sin. Man cannot see a need for repentance. Man cannot see the need of a saviour. Nor can he see the wonder and the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is to the nature of that guilt and that wrath and that darkness that Paul in this letter to the church in Rome now turns his attention. As in graphic descriptions, he lays out the distinctions of unbelief and the reason the world needs the gospel, the reason the world needs the Lord Jesus Christ. The lack of concern that, that men and women have today for the gospel is because they know nothing of God's law. Having suppressed or rejected its authority, his authority. The whole world is in open and willing rebellion against God in order that we might live in unrighteousness according to the lusts of our own hearts. Therefore, the Apostle writes in verse 18 of chapter 1 here, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is holy. God is perfect He is righteous and just in all he does and in all his ways. And therefore he has a holy hatred of sin, of everything which is wicked and everything which is evil. He is not indifferent to those who break his laws. He cannot condone what is evil but instead he condemns it otherwise he wouldn't be just he wouldn't be perfect 
R.C. Sproul writes that a judge without a distaste for evil would not be a good judge. And so sinners are cut off from the love of God. And in ungodliness and in unrighteousness are the recipients of his wrath. Justly so. Of course, the gospel is the answer to this problem. This problem which separates mankind from the love of God by gifting the righteousness of Jesus Christ by imputation through faith, by the grace of God to sinners. By creating a new heart, new life in the sinner. And bringing him or her into relationship, into a new covenant which is formed. Which depends not on our ability to keep God's law, but on Christ's completed perfect obedience. But as I say, Paul's focus, Paul's emphasis in this part, this second part of the first chapter is that of the distinctions of unbelief. So as to better set in contrast the wonders and the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to think this evening, I want to draw your attention, but not too strongly, towards some of Paul's emphasis here regarding the distinctions of unbelief. We read these things, we read these words, and perhaps we're convicted to some degree over these things. We don't want to look too deeply, too strongly into these things, because we're worried about what we might see in our own self, perhaps. But let's see what the Apostle has to say to us. Let's see what the Lord has to say to us. And the first aspect that I want us to draw, want to draw your attention to is the suppression of truth. The suppression of truth. In reality, there is no ignorance of God. Only suppression of the truth. The universe, the creation around us proclaims, it, it practically screams of the existence of a creator. It says to us that there is a personal being with wisdom and intelligence and power and capabilities far beyond our own that we cannot fathom. And whether we are awed by the complexity of the the smallest molecule or whether we're amazed at the sheer vastness of the cosmos. To look into these things is to see revealed in them the glory, the majesty, and the power of God's. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. 
Added to that, the, the fact that we, though his creations, creations of, a, of the perfect being, we ourselves are imperfect. That tells us that something has gone wrong. And it has to be on our side because God is perfect and we're not. So if something's wrong, it's wrong with us, isn't it? Something has come between the good creator and his creation. And that something, of course, is sin. That's what the gospel tells us. But in an act of barefaced, unrighteous rebellion, mankind has chosen to stamp down and crush any thought of this. To find any means to explain the universe and the world we see around us as it is, to suppress the truth, to reject the Creator, to crush the the logical implications of what that means for us so that we can live however we please. Willingly forgetting Ignoring or rejecting what God has done. Refusing to acknowledge the obligations we have to him as our creator. As our God. As our Lord. And so often this takes place even at a subconscious level. People are not even aware they're doing it. Because this is what sin does. Sin suppresses the truth of God's. So that we don't even know the truth. So that we don't see it. So that we can't see it. It throws all kinds of other things in our eyes, in our face, so that we're so preoccupied with everything else that's going on around us, we cannot see the truth. The reality of our situation. The depth of our sin. And the wrath of God which is upon mankind because of it. Sin suppresses the truth. In fact, it's what sin has always done. Sin suppresses the truth. But it does more than that because the second aspect that that Paul brings out here is that it resists the truth as well. Verses 21 to 23. As the the glory and the eternal power of God is clear to us in creation, sin's role in not only suppressing the truth, but contorting it and bending it and twisting it comes out in, in Genesis 3. We read earlier on, when sin first enters the world, what does Satan do? He twists, he contorts, he bends God's words. That wicked servant, serpent twists the very words of God until Adam and Eve fall to sin and temptation. Until they rebel. Verse 21 could be very, very easily written commenting on that very event. 
Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Instead of glorifying him as God, instead of being thankful for his generosity, his kindness, his love, his mercy and grace to them, through the schemes of Satan, their thoughts, their minds, their hearts were hardened and darkened towards God. And so in Adam, sin and death reigned. Paul's going to develop this a little bit more when he gets to chapter 5. And he tells us that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And he tells us of the free gift of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so there is death in Adam, but life in Christ by faith in him. But sin destroys our ability to think. Sin destroys our ability to think and behave in a way that reflects who we are as God's creatures with an obligation to our Creator. It affects our our consciences. So that even as believers, we can become hardened and seared so that we can't even see the sin within us. The world professes to be wise. The world professes to to be rational. But sin has blinded the world. Suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Twisting and contorting it until it bears no relation to the truth. And this has additional consequences because it brings a moral confusion into the hearts of men. And ultimately, a moral bankruptcy, both at personal and societal levels. It makes men and women who should be worshipping their creator into worshippers of idols, worshippers of self. And so in verse 24, there's this frightening statement. And this should should send shivers down our spines. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. He gave them up. Gave them over to it. If that is the way you want to go, if that is the way you want to live your life, if you choose to live it in suppression of the truth, if you choose to live it in sin and going that way, then God will let you. He will give you up to that life. Because when the truth of God is suppressed, when it is twisted, it leads to our third distinctive of unbelief, and that is perversions of life. So we've got suppression of the truth, we have the twisting of the truth, and we have, as a consequence of those things, perversions of life. Verses 24 to 32. Man without God 
is a creation without purpose, without meaning, and without morality. That's not originally, originally to me, that's, uh, that's another writer, that's not mine. Man without God is a creation without purpose, without meaning, and without morality. Verse 24 probably references Psalm 81, verse 12. We sang uh, that psalm just before, or part of that psalm, just before we, we started to, to look at this text this evening. Um, uh, and that expresses something of Israel's idolatry. That whole psalm, Psalm 81, uh, is, is about the calling to repentance of Israel, of God's children. Where are we? Psalm 81. Hear my people and I will admonish you, verse 8. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn hearts to walk in their own counsels. Israel's idolatry is symptomatic of humanity's universal sinfulness our universal rebellion against God even the covenant community of God is infected and affected by sin to the point where God gave them up for a time the apostle writes of vile passions A disturbing and perversion of the emotions. He writes of a a debased mind. A twisting of our thoughts. He writes of a whole host of shameful activities in verses 29 to 32. Which is fearful to read. Unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, covetousness. Covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things as if there weren't enough evil things in the world, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Approving of those who practice such things. I don't know about you, but as I read those things, I was so convicted. How many of those things are you guilty of? I think at one time or another, I, could probably, I would probably have to hold my hand up to every one of them. Every one. These perversions of the life that God gives to us because of sin, because mankind rejects him, because it suppresses the truth. This is the result. This is the consequence. Verse 
And it's really interesting that Paul's strongest emphasis in this passage is on sexual perversion. Almost as if it's a barometer to the spiritual health of a people. He talks of both heterosexual and homosexual perversions as an illustration of the extremity of mankind's depravity. A sign of judgment. Homosexuality, says Paul, is so obviously unnatural. It underlines the extent to which sin takes hold of mankind. Other sins are just as evil and just as wrong, but this inversion of a created purpose, denying his command to to multiply and fill the earth, a willing rebellion, just on so many levels, indicates a deep, deep wound in a sinful society. Paul emphasized it so much, probably because it was going on around him so much, and he was aware that it was common practice in the Roman Empire, and no doubt was very common in in Rome itself. Sexual immorality isn't seen in Scripture as the unforgivable sin. But it does have an unforgettable effect. Because it destroys sexual intimacy and it destroys relationships. How many today live with the insecurity and uncertainty of not knowing who their father is? How many children live in the turmoil of broken marriages because of the unfaithfulness of a parent? Some in our day today have tried to exclude what they refer to as faithful homosexual relationships from the definition of the the biblical term here that's translated sexual immorality. But Paul's very explicit in what he's condemning, isn't he? What he calls vile passions, what he says is a result of a debased mind given over to seeking its own desires instead of God's. Some say, God made me this way, so he and the world must accept me as I am. But here's some news for you. God does not accept you the way you are. God does not accept us as we are. No, instead he calls on men and women everywhere to repent of sin. And he tells us what is sinful. To repent and to believe on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation, for forgiveness, for deliverance, for glory. And without this repentance, without this faith, Men and women will remain alienated from him forever. The good news that Paul says in verse 15 that he is ready to come and preach in Rome. The gospel. 
is that God, by his Holy Spirit, brings to us the conviction of our sin, makes us aware of the reality of our situation, living under God's wrath. He reveals the truth that mankind in unrighteousness suppresses. He untangles our thoughts and enlightens our darkened hearts. He presents to us Jesus Christ the righteous, the Son of God who died in our place to be our Savior. And so in Christ, we are welcome to come as we are, with all of our baggage, with all of our sin, with all of our problems. Indeed, we can come to him no other way. But having met with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way at all that we can stay the same. We cannot remain living in sin. We must repent. Having transformed believers from objects of his wrath into subjects of his grace, by that grace, through his spirit, he will transform us. We cannot stay the same. For the reality of these things, the reality of, of this, this graphic and, and painful description of what sin and unbelief is, is that even as believers... No matter how long you've been following the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually find much in common with the sinful, fallen world. But in Jesus Christ, if you are in Him, you have an advocate with the Father, someone to speak on your behalf. And more than that, you have his righteousness. If you are his. And so the call as we started this evening with Jesus' words from Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And that is a call not only for the sinners, for, for the people in the world. It is, a, it is a call daily for you and me as Christians. To each and every day repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Of his death and resurrection, of sins forgiven. And of glory to come. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sinned. Lord, make us aware of our sin. Bring us to repentance. And in your grace, according to your mercy in Jesus Christ, forgive us. And Lord, for the world that continues to suppress and twist 
the truth of your word, for the world that continues to live and love the perversion of life that it leads to. Lord, convict them of sin. Move in power to save. Build your kingdom as you rescue sinners from hell and damnation. And Lord, cause us to walk in righteousness. Cause us to shun this wickedness this sin, this way of life, which is what we once were, we are no longer in that world. We are no longer in that life, Lord. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to a new life. So, Lord, help us to live that life and to put off the old and to walk in your ways for your glory and in the precious name and holy name of Jesus Christ our Saviour. We ask these things. Amen.